1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free
0: shipping and 365-day returns.
1: And now, the Story Studio Hawk & Cleaver presents The Witching Out.
0: The Witching Hour is brought to you by the Mysteries to Die For podcast. It starts with a body. Suspects line up. All have motive, but which one killed? Mysteries to Die For is the podcast for mystery lovers. Season 3 contains the first stories of series detectives like Sherlock Holmes, Monsieur Lecoq and Hercule Poirot. Can you find the killer before these masters stage their grand reveals? Subscribe to Mysteries to Die For wherever you get your podcasts and put your skills to the test. That's the Mysteries to Die For podcast.
1: The Imposter Written by Ben Errington Performed by James Jimmy Horrors Barnett
0: If there were two things Terry Fletcher was good at, they were watching and listening. He listened to the words of the other masked and robed figures gathered around the bonfire and did his best to at least seem like he was following along, keeping to himself to avoid being drawn into a conversation he couldn't fake. He tried to emulate their movements as they each took a sip from the cup that was handed to each of them, one by one. He followed the lead of the others as they threw their tokens into the flames, items that held some significance to each of them. Terry hadn't been sure what to bring, but he'd been told that it had to be something he wouldn't mind seeing burn. Terry cast his parole letter into the fire and watched as it curled up into a blackened ball. He'd done his time, nearly 12 years inside for a crime he didn't like thinking about. His past was his past, and there was nothing he could do about it. He was here for the future, and a reward far more tangible than wishes. The whole scenario was quite ridiculous to Terry, and the spectacle that went alongside the ceremony was almost laughable. He'd almost called out, Get on with it, once or twice, but bit his tongue from behind the fake face he was wearing. The theatrical mask, which resembled a cherub with golden detail around the eyes, was something he wouldn't be caught dead wearing by choice. But the old man insisted it was important. There were consequences for attending the ritual uninvited. Casting his eyes around the circle, he felt as comfortably out of place as the rest of this mismatched group. Everybody looked as strange as he was sure he did. Between the superhero, the parrot, and the jester, he wasn't sure who looked most ridiculous. He was sure the lioness looked pregnant, although perhaps she was just carrying some extra weight. These days, it was rude to assume somebody was up the duff. As midnight struck, the congregation proclaimed the words to the ritual in unison. Terry hadn't committed the old man's ramblings to memory, so he mumbled along, like he had as a disinterested lad, forced to attend church by his mum. We We gathered gathered souls, call those
1: eternal, out this time time infernal. infernal. Grant Grant those worthy with your your boundless
0: power power. their Their hearts' desire. This this witching hour, whose metal may not suffice, suffice. may you you claim their lives and sacrifice. sacrifice. As the ritual dispersed and everybody went their separate ways, Terry turned and skulked into the woods behind him. Whatever each of the others was doing was of no interest to him. He moved quickly before any of them might get too close a look at him. As he walked deeper into the woods, he replayed all the decisions that had brought him here, the mistakes in his life that had left him the only friend of a dying man. He didn't think his time in prison had taught him any valuable life lessons. It was an inconvenience that stripped him of his youth, his friends, and any cash he had squirreled away for a rainy day. His parents were long gone, leaving behind mostly debts, and his money-grabbing sister had sold off anything half-valuable while he'd been inside. He'd said the right words at parole hearings, mouthing along just like now at the ritual. In reality, he didn't feel remorse or regret, just anger. He'd been pissed off ever since his sentence got handed to him, and that annoyance didn't falter over a decade later when he got out. Not for a second. In prison, Terry kept his head down and his ear to the ground. Plenty of men that surrounded him were more than happy to command respect through their violence. That wasn't a contest he'd win, so he preferred life as an outsider, just another face in the background. He kept his head down and out of the way, but when he needed to, he'd allowed information of what he'd seen or heard to slip to whoever's reaction would benefit Terry the most. Screws, rats, thugs, or gang members. Anyone with power or the ability to sway situations. He never made any friends, but that suited him just fine. He ensured he never appeared as a threat, all the while honing his watching and listening skills. If he was totally honest, the games he played were quite fun at times. Once you were used to it, prison was a doddle. Freedom was a lot more difficult, holding down a job, paying his rent on time, and trying to make sure he ate at least one square meal a day were his top priorities. No skills he'd learned in prison were an attractive enough offset for having a record in the eyes of most employers, so he got whatever shitty work he could. He'd have liked to meet a woman who could take care of him, but he knew he was too old, too skinny and too balding for any decent-looking woman of his age to look twice at him. Plus, he had four good teeth in his mouth. Hardly an oil painting, are you, Ter? He'd say, with a rancid grin each morning in the mirror. After months of depressing rejections, mixed in with bouts of casual factory work, he landed himself a job as a caretaker at Candlewood Care Home. He mopped the floor twice a day, once in the morning, and once before he clocked off. In between, he was a handyman in General Dog's body, for whoever fancied ordering him to do this or do that. Palliative care, they called it. Basically a place to make you feel better, when there were no ways left to make you get better. The place was sterile and stagnant. made Terry think about the bleak nature of the human condition, even more so than Jale did. It wasn't the type of warm place, with loving relatives and savoured final moments. It was a place that people came to die quietly, and they'd given up. The only visitors to the depressing deathbeds in every room were vultures circling until they could swoop in and grab their inheritance, feigning care and feigning sadness, urgently trying to build bridges that had burned down long ago to feel better as they picked the carcass of an inconvenient relative clean the moment the last sorrowful breath left their lips. Charles Mooney's lungs were shrivelled and blackened, made rancid by decades of a -a 40-a-day habit, and something still worse eating him away. His cough filled the holes as Terry mopped them, like his body was crying out for help, or for somebody to put them out of their misery. Charlie had always been kind to Terry, always saying good morning and good night, and gasping his way through anecdotes of what was, by all accounts, a lonely life. Terry would listen, and he knew that's all Charlie wanted. Charlie wasn't a good bloke, and neither was Terry. Perhaps that's why they gravitated towards each other, both grasping desperately for human contact, whilst being too stubborn to admit they needed it. As days grew to weeks... Terry realised that Charlie was almost as much of a grifter as he was. Charles was a haunting vision of Terry's future, having reached his 60s, but after a lifetime of dirty deeds and scraping by, Charlie had hit a stroke of luck. After picking up just a couple of years of work at a factory before retirement, a chemical leak had given him a skin condition he'd mostly ignored. But then the cough set in. It proved something more wretched, than the one he had from the years of tobacco damage alone. Charlie was eventually convinced to speak to a doctor and then a solicitor. Even after the lawyers had taken their share, Charlie received a tasty payout and was set for what was to be left of his life. On the day he first mentioned the ritual, Terry had heard Ray's voices coming from Charlie's room. When the door swung open... The daughter of some deceased and distant cousin Charlie hadn't seen for 15 years, but still, his only living family member, stormed out. She was overweight and unattractive, with hair sizzled and thinning after being bleached dozens of times. She stormed out of the building like a petulant child. When Terry looked in to see if Charlie was okay, he saw him scowling, muttering words under his breath as he continued the argument alone. The girl wanted Charlie's money, of course, and Charlie was going to make sure she didn't see a penny. Quietly, as Terry sat down on the edge of Charlie's bed, the dying man asked Terry for a favor. If he could do this one thing for him, he'd see to it that he would never have to work a day in this graveyard ever again. Both could escape. Terry through the front door, and Charlie into the ground. Charles Mooney spun a tall tale, and Terry listened. He was good at that. The old man told Terry about a ritual, a group of people drawn to it, and a secret Charles had kept for close to a decade. Some had been lucky, made it big, others had near lost their minds. One girl had died. Charlie had been one of the lucky ones. His wish had been granted. Terry scoffed, but Charles insisted. He had wished for money and got it. More than a man like him would be around long enough to enjoy. But he had done something wrong on that night, and his wish had come with a dreadful price. This illness. He would die soon. And as it drew closer, he'd been having nightmares and was worried that not even death would be a way out for him. However... There was going to be another ritual. He'd be expected. But he was barely able to walk. There was no way he could go alone. Charlie begged Terry to go to the ritual, take his place, and make a final wish on his behalf. The wish would be for an escape, not from his death, but whatever the forces that fed the ritual had in store for him. In exchange for this, he'd make Terry his sole heir, making sure he inherited every pound he had to his name. Terry thought on the words of the dying man for almost three days, convincing himself that Charlie had gone rotten in his brain as well as his lungs. Plus, he was on so many painkillers, the man clearly wasn't in a reliable state. The next time Terry saw Charles, he was looking far worse, as if somehow the weight of the secrets he'd been keeping were corroding him from the inside out. As he looked at him, Terry wondered what he truly had to lose. He'd been so down on his luck for so long that a wild goose chase with a potential golden egg at the end wasn't the worst excursion he could embark on. So, Terry agreed. Charles gave him an address and a key to a locker. His only instruction was to burn everything inside. All except for a handful of items which were in the top drawer of a filing cabinet inside the storage container. A map, a hooded cape, and a gaudy theatrical mask he was now wearing. When he returned to Candlewood Care home, still reeking of lighter fluid and ash, Terry discovered that not only had Charles passed away just hours before, but his room had been cleared out, the stench of death allowed to escape through an open window, and another poor old boy, shipped in to die at the tail end of the conveyor belt of life. Charlie had left an envelope addressed to Terry with a copied document inside. The old man had been as good as his word. His, whatever a cousin's daughter is considered, would no doubt protest. But according to the letter, he stood to inherit everything Charlie had. As the night approached, Terry thought about backing out. After all, Charlie was already dead. But something, maybe some sense of commitment to the old sod, had him going soft. Or perhaps there was some honour among thieves after all. Either way, he'd shown up and he'd see the ritual out. For Charlie. Some distance between Terry and the circle, he took off the mask. Prepared for the possibility of getting lost, he unclipped a battery-powered head torch from his belt, stretched the elastic over his head and switched it on. The trees in front of him suddenly illuminated with bright yellow light. He reached into his back pocket and pulled out the map Charles had left in his lockup, the rudimentary pencil sketch faded on lined white paper. It wasn't the easiest map to understand, but as far as Terry could tell, from the ritual site, he had to walk northeast for roughly three kilometers until reaching a landmark. A tree split in half, the trunk filled with rocks. Terry glanced at the compass that he hadn't had use for since his teenage years of orienteering. Charles had fussed endlessly to Terry about needing to retrieve something at the site on the map. He could have done with the old man being more specific about the details, rather than keeping all the important information to himself. Terry glared at the compass as the needle seemed to shift and wobble, focusing on trying to navigate. But soon there were noises echoing through the forest around him that gave Terry a knot in his stomach. Distant screams, followed by wailing, sounded anything but human those cult bastards were trying to shit him up, he'd have no problem lamping one of them. Even the pregnant woman if she fucked with him. His trainers were getting wet, the moisture soaking his socks as the ground became boggier and he almost slipped on his ass once or twice. He'd been walking for 20 minutes or so and he was sure he was still on the correct path but the sudden feeling of what Terry could only describe as a dog nipping at his ankles made him turn around and yell. Looking around on the ground, Terry noticed he must have got tangled in the undergrowth, kicking the brambles that bound his ankle away. He carried on in the same direction. Only a few seconds later, he felt the nipping again. This time, he was convinced that he even felt teeth clamping onto his skin. He scanned the ground, but couldn't see anything other than his muddled footprints crowding each other out. How was this possible? He'd been walking straight, hadn't he? A swirling growl surrounded his head and he ducked, this time slipping and falling forwards, steadying himself with his hands and crumpling the map into a muddied mess. The head torch slipped over his eyes and he pushed it back into place smearing dirt onto his forehead. He looked up saw a young boy standing beneath a tree 20 or so feet in front of him. The boy was no older than seven, and Terry immediately recognised what he was wearing. It was an Arsenal football shirt, not an official one, the kind you would buy at a market for much cheaper than the sports stores. Most wouldn't really tell the difference, but Terry could. The badge wasn't quite in the right place, and the collar was wonky. Even from this distance, Terry knew that. He knew, because he'd seen the shirt before, and the boy wearing it. The boy had ginger hair and a freckled nose, his grey jogging bottoms full of holes, and his discoloured white pumps splitting at their sides. His name was James Fredrickson, and Terry had killed him with his Vauxhall Astra. After drinking too many whiskeys, day drinking had never sat well with him. He had stopped and looked at James's lifeless body lying on the road in his mirror. He didn't get out to check if the kid was alive before driving home and falling asleep, only to be woken by the thumping of a police officer on the door of his flat that night. This boy's death had landed him in that cage for what should have been his best years, and somehow, James was here looking the same as he did that day. Less dead, of course. James? Terry called out to him. His voice cracked. The boy laughed. Not real. Definitely not real. Hallucination. Terry hadn't experienced one of those before, to be sure. Either that or a ghost. But Terry didn't believe in ghosts. No more than he believed in unicorns, or fairies, or fucking leprechauns. He stood up and the boy turned to run. Wait! The boy set off and Terry did too. It was instinct more than logic. What would he do if he even caught up to the boy he knew had been dead for so long? He'd been set up. He was sure of it. Charles Mooney was a relative of James's. This was extravagant revenge. The long game played out to humiliate and degrade Terry. As if the time in jail wasn't enough... He knew the family hadn't been happy at the length of the sentence. They'd said as much in the press. A look-alike. That was it. Fucking little prick. Terry was going to slit his throat. Kill the boy twice when he got hold of him. Better teach whoever was behind this. Terry lost sight of the kid and ran blindly through the trees. But then he skidded to a halt and he saw it. The landmark he'd been looking for tree split in two and filled with rocks. Just beyond there, he could see the place that Charles had said he needed him to find. The opening to a cave. He approached. James having now vanished into the night, he tried to shake the spectre of the boy as he entered the cave. His head hurt and his mouth was dry. No time now. Just find whatever it is and go. He looked on the ground for something else that had inexplicably been left untouched for a decade. It was a pile of rocks. This was where Charlie had told Terry to dig. Terry threw open his cloak to reveal the other items he had decided to bring along to the ritual. His belt looked like something Batman would leave the house with. He pulled out a trowel and scurried onto the ground, knocking over the rocks with eager hands, digging into the dry earth with the tool. panted like a thirsty dog as he scooped the dirt behind him. Only six inches or so deep, he hit a wooden surface, and after several more minutes of not-so-careful excavation, he removed a box, no bigger than the music box he had once stolen from his spiteful old mum to trade for pirated videos. There was no keyhole or locking mechanism on the box, and the lid was rotting. He opened it slowly. A mask. Faded and split in two, the mouth hanging off from the rest of it, like a broken jaw. What did it even mean? He threw it to the ground, and it further broke into several pieces, half perished from years in the earth. He'd been led on a merry chase, but to what end? Whether the nonsense wish of a dead man, or something meant to punish him for a debt already paid, he'd seen enough. He knew he had to get out of this place immediately and jump on the first train home. He'd earned his money. Terry turned around and saw only the cave wall in front of him. He turned another way and saw just the same. He had somehow got disorientated in the excitement of digging up the non-existent treasure. But no, the cave was too small to get lost in. He looked again for the exit. It was gone. In every direction, there was just rock. Terry walked forwards and placed his hands on the cold, damp surface of the wall and feeling around for a gap. He pushed, hoping there was some kind of panel he could trigger to open a door, like Indiana Jones. There was nothing. He moved along the wall, his hands searching for something that would ultimately lead to the way out. He turned around half expecting to see the faint glow of moonlight, confirming that he'd simply confused himself like an idiot. But there was only the inside of the cave. A never-ending, but somehow impossibly tiny cave. No way in, or out. Terry's head torch buzzed and dimmed, plunging him into darkness. He reached up and fumbled at the switch. As light returned, there was James, closer this time. Terry pulled out a Stanley knife, quickly pushed the blade up, and swung it at James, but hit nothing. The kid wasn't standing beyond arm's length. No way Terry could have missed him, and yet he had. He lashed out again, stepping forwards this time, but he couldn't make a connection. The blade didn't pass through the boy as if he was vapor or a projected image. It was as if without moving, he was always too far away for Terry to hurt. He lunged forward again and hit his head. The impact knocked the torch from its mounting and Terry scrambled to retrieve it. When he stood, he hit his head again. The ceiling was even lower now, forcing him to hunch over. Fuck! Terry desperately fumbled with the torch to switch it back on. The walls which he had to step forwards to reach before were now close enough to touch without moving at all. James was nowhere to be seen, and Terry flung off his cloak, manically hitting at the walls with bold fists. Help! He looked around on the floor for the broken mask. Maybe he could fix it back together and return it to the ground. Somehow that would end this nightmare. He couldn't see a single piece of the mask, and the hole had disappeared, filled in or swallowed up by the walls of the cave. Help me! me. It was quiet for a second, as he heard the cave creak, intending to swallow him. The head torch flickered again. Each time, the brief moments of darkness allowed the space which Terry stood in to grow smaller and smaller. He didn't see the walls move, heard them, and soon, he felt them too.
1: You're not Charlie.
0: A feminine voice whispered into Terry's ear. He leapt away from the source of the voice, but there was nowhere to run. Not Charlie, but taking his place in the circle. I see. Then all that was his is now yours. The stone pressed hard against his back and then his shoulders. He tried to move away, but the cave now pushed into his nose. He turned his face and felt the squeeze against his cheek didn't have time to bring his arms up to push his way free. Already, the cave gripped him so tight that his limbs had no chance to reposition. The Stanley knife dropped from his grasp, but there was no room for it to reach the floor. It pushed into his hip. The plastic bulb of the head torch cracked. There was nothing but darkness now. Darkness and Terry's muffled screams. There was a pop as a bone broke. His mouth began to fill up with blood as his teeth closed around his tongue. His skull was in a vice and although he wanted to scream and cry, he could only whimper. Powerless to fight for his life, Terry felt like he was forced to use those skills of his that he'd perfected. Watching and listening. Watching and listening to his own death in his final moments as he was devoured by the cave.
1: The Witching Hour is a production of the story studio Hawk and Cleaver, directed by Andy Conduit Turner. Tonight's episode, The Imposter, was written by Ben Errington and performed by James Jimmy Horrors Barnett. Music, sound, and editing are all from Duncan Muggleton with additional sounds from freesound.org. Our entire series is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which, as we always say in the old country means, Don't sell it, don't edit it, don't fashion it into a subterranean vehicle to facilitate your journey to the centre of the Earth itself. But you can share it as much as you'd like.